Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including life groups, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Rob Basham. Thank you, team, for leading us well. Welcome, church family. Welcome those on live stream. My name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Sam Alliance, and it is good to be together. If you were here last week, we had the opportunity to commission two of our own, Rachel and Ashley, who were going to West Africa. They've sent back a, a picture to demonstrate that they've made it, and they're having a good time with Macy Rubel, one of our international workers there in West Africa. And so we're excited about that. They continue to say it's been a busy time. They'll be back this week, and we look forward to hearing what God has done there. Also, last week, in addition to just having an incredible time of worship and getting into the word, many people came to the cross last week. So Valentin, Jocelyn, Jake, uh, someone from the Salem Free Clinics also decided to start a relationship with Jesus. We had a couple people come and recommit. A lot of ribbons were pounded, but we have roses to celebrate that new life in Christ. Would you celebrate that today? And God is smiling on us with some sunshine this weekend, and so I personally rejoice in that, and uh, that's a pretty awesome thing. Hey, the great philosopher Kelly Clarkson states, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's actually not her. Sorry, it's not. Uh, that, that line is attributed to the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who in his earlier writings, his later writings get a little interesting for those of you that are philosophers, you know what I'm talking about. But he uh, is one that would often say this. He would say that trials are blessings in disguise, that suffering is actually something that is good. It makes us know that we're alive. And as we endure the difficulties, it makes us better people, prepared for life's challenges. Well, Friedrich, I don't know if you're right or not. You probably are. But I know that I don't like to suffer. I don't want to suffer. And yet I have and I will. Many of us in this room, that is what we are walking through. It's inevitable. Whether it be physical deterioration, chronic pain, the loss of loved ones, or relationships that have disintegrated and aren't going well, suffering is part of our reality. Suffering is part of our global landscape, even right now, as wars rage. Scripture confirms that Jesus says this was what was to be expected. In John 16, he says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you have trials of many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. This week, we're launching into a new series called Trust a look at James and the book of Job. The tagline, wisdom, humility, and worship found through suffering. Job is one of three books in the Old Testament that are considered wisdom literature, along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And it's a book that just depicts this dialogue over suffering and justice and the way that God rules the world. It's this grand, ancient piece of literature. In fact, the great novelist Victor Hugo says, if all of the literature in the world was to go away and he was asked, if you could keep one piece of literature, what would you keep? And his response, I would hold on to the book of Job. 
We're tying this to trying something new. We're tying the book of Job, an Old Testament book, to a book in the New Testament, and we've chosen to pair it with the book of James. James is a brother of Jesus who was pastoring a church in Jerusalem, an early church, and throughout his book, he gives us just this practical understanding of what it means to live out the kingdom, to live out the message of Jesus. We hope that you join us in this series. We have Bible study curriculum that has been put together, and I hope that you go ahead and grab one of these. These are available on Amazon. We have a couple for sale in the lobby as well. Whether you go through that on your own or in a, in a life group together with others, in there are these stages of lament. In there is just a deeper dive into these two incredible, incredible books. Many have asked me, why are we talking about suffering? Mainly, I've been asking myself that question as an optimist. Why, why are we doing this? Things around here, it seems like are going pretty well. People actually enjoy coming on a weekend to worship together. People are enjoying going to their life groups. Why speak on such a downer of a topic? The answer is because scripture does, and it does so often. Into neglect, looking at a book like Job cheapens the faith that we share. You see, trust through times of suffering is an incredibly high form of worship. Suffering produces a depth in people, wisdom, empathy, humility, and those that who've walked through dark seasons, rarely would you describe them as shallow. There's a depth of faith that comes through the journey. I have many friends that are in the ministry uh, spread all over the place, and I, I love the fact that I do. I have people I can go to and talk to, and many of these men and women continue to just pour into me and fill me up, and whether they're peers or they're mentors, it's just a healthy thing. But there's one individual in particular that has taught me a lot about this. Every time I get with them, I'm just filled up. They're a pastor that's in, in another city in our state. They're in another movement, another denomination. But when I get with them, I just leave refreshed. I leave knowing that I've met someone that has a depth that is, that is further along than my own. After connecting a couple times with this person, I began to hear a little bit about their life story and that over 25 years ago, their wife and their children all died tragically in a car accident. When I heard that, I didn't even have like a reaction that I could give. Like I, that, that is such a tragedy, a modern day Job type events that I don't know how you recover from that. And yet my friend leaned in instead of leading away. He lamented, he poured out his anger to God and the result is a person that you wanna be around. The result is a person that wrestled, a person with a deep wisdom, a heart of worship and empathy He's a father and a husband again, and his church is growing because of the depth of who he is. Our team's hope is that as we walk through this series that you will wrestle, that you will ask the difficult questions to God and to one another. Our hope is that you learn the importance of embracing lament and the difficulties that life throws at you. Our hope is that you learn how to be an empathetic listener and friend to people in ways that Job's own friends weren't. Our hope is that God reveals his sovereignty to you in a new and fresh way through this series that allows you to have a deeper trust in him. 
Today, with the time that we have left, we're going to focus on the prologue of, James, of Job. We're going to be peppering in some verses from the book of James as well. Understand the book of Job, it's a longer book. And the first two chapters is the prologue. That's where we're introduced to the main character. And then we are, are taken to just these dialogues for chapters of this rich Hebrew poetry of dialogues between Job and his multiple friends. And then we have a short conclusion at the end where God finally shows up and speaks. And it's a powerful book. In it, in addition to meeting the character Job, we're given a glimpse of kind of the command center, the the mission place where God governs the world. But the big thing that the prologue does is it gives us a question that the book will begin to address. The question is this, does obedience lead to prosperity and disobedience lead to adversity? What is that saying? It's saying, do we bring on our own suffering because of our choices and behavior? And does righteousness and integrity in our lives bring us blessing? This was the traditional thinking of the time. If I'm good, I'll be blessed. If I'm bad, I will. I will bad things are going to happen to me. This is the way the Israelites culturally and religiously operated in the day. Sickness because of sin, wealth because of righteousness, famine because of communal idolatry, poverty because of immorality. If things were going well, there was a clear reason, our behavior. If things were not going well, there was a clear reason, our behavior. And this cause and effect thinking was embedded and consistent in the culture. But as you're going to see right here in the prologue, Job is confronted with something that this is not his lived reality. His experience is not going to match up with the philosophical and religious understanding of the day because Job is a righteous sufferer. A righteous sufferer. In those two words, there's no framework to even put those two words together. In the time of the Israelites, they don't go together. They can't be connected. But here in the prologue, we see that they are. So let's jump into the story. Job chapter 1. You can turn there in your Bibles or on your apps, but I'll put it on the screen as well. Job 1, 1 to 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. That just flows magically off your tongue. I want you to say it with me. It's so beautiful. You ready? Here we go. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Very well done. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And with what I've already told you, that means what? It means he's going to be wealthy. It means he's going to be blessed. And it goes on and it tells us that is true. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. And if I was blessed, I would own no camels. I live in the Middle East, and they're nasty animals. I just would have none. But I would have 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Pause right there. This is such a side tangent, but I've been so bothered by where are the male donkeys? Like, it seems unfair that we've, like, where are the male donkeys? And so I just totally wasted probably 40 minutes of my life trying to figure out where the male donkeys are in this story. And to the best of what I found, according to scholars, it's because uh, donkeys produce milk, and that milk was a big commodity in the time of Job. Thus, male donkeys, worthless female donkeys make the list. I don't know what to tell you. 
He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. To the Hebrew reader, this makes total sense. We have correlation. The person is full of integrity, so of course, they are wealthy and blessed. But we learn a little bit more about Job, and our setting quickly changes. Our setting changes, and all of a sudden, we're taken to this throne room of God, the command center. This is just, it's described there, and there we see God make the same statements about Job. And there we see this group called the divine council that has gathered, and among them is also Satan. Scholars would tell you that this is not the Satan, but Satan meaning a word for a one who is opposed or brings accusation, and the accuser, of course, brings an accusation. Here in this command center, the accuser goes to God, and he says, listen, the only reason that Job fears you and is righteous is because it's good for him. It produces wealth for him. It produces protection for him. Let me pause here because it's this interesting thing, and a lot of people get stuck here. They're confused, and it's just weirded out by this throne room scene of how this council is governing the world. And I don't have time to unpack all of it, but two things. One, if you want to know more about this, I did a sermon on this in the summer. I think it was in July about the divine council, and you can go and check that out. And if you still have questions, email Brian Candelo, and he will answer whatever you have. In fact, I would be happy to help you craft a difficult question for Brian. You can talk to me later. But we pick up the story again in verse 8. Verse 8, then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has a good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out, take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Here the accuser is saying the only reason that he praises you is because you bless him. And he's saying if you take away that blessing, he won't simply walk away from you. He'll actually curse you to your face. To prove that that's not the case, God knows Job's integrity is legit, and he allows Satan, permits him to test him. And Job loses everything, the oxen, the camels, I'm assuming the male and female donkeys. But he loses his children. I can't imagine. We see Job stricken with incredible grief, but he laments rather than cursing God. And again, we find ourselves in the throne room again, and this time Satan says, take away his health, and surely he will curse you to your face. And again, God says, go ahead. He is a righteous man, and Job is stricken with terrible boils from head to foot, and we pick the story up in Job 2, verse 8. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job never said anything wrong. 
Job's wife often gets a bad rap because of this passage. And can I remind you that she also is suffering at a level equal to Job? And can I remind you that it would be a pretty normal response to have? And can I also point out that Job responds to her not saying, should I accept, but says, should we accept, and maintains a unity with his wife that we don't see disintegrate throughout the entire book. And I think there's something there, likely another sermon. But here, the backdrop for the conversation of Job and his friends is set. And the book will move on to address other questions, but what's important here in the introduction is that we do see Job is innocent. He is a righteous, he's a righteous sufferer. And it's important to have that lens as we begin to look at all the dialogues that will happen with his friends. And here also, again, we come back to the question, does obedience lead to prosperity and disobedience lead to adversity? This is such an important question because it deals with motivation. Our motivation, the question of why do we follow this God? The accuser is saying people only follow you because life is going to go better if they do. And therefore, it's all about behavior modification and selfishness. And this book answers that question. Ultimately, the book of Job points to those in bondage, thinking that somehow they can earn their blessings and salvation and says, no, that's not how it works. That's the deceiver's best play to keep you in bondage, and it's not how it works. Around here, I'll often throw up these three words, behave, believe, and behold. And we've talked about this before because this is what leads to a bondage. This is what leads to legalism. When we start with our behavior, it is simply behavior modification. And it's out of our own self that we're trying really, really hard to please what is likely an angry God in our understanding. And if we can behave well enough and, and we can just start to just kind of believe some, some, some about this God and, and say the right things, then maybe, maybe if we're playing this game well enough, we can behold who God is. Maybe we'll catch a glimpse of him. Maybe a time of worship will be powerful and we'll sense his presence or his, the words of scripture will pop off the screen to us. But this leads to bondage. This is legalism. This is what the book of Job is addressing. And the key to combat this is to simply switch the arrows, to start with beholding who God is. When that is our starting place, when we see his awe, when we understand how great he is, when we catch a glimpse of him and worship in his word through someone else, through nature, and that is our starting place, of course we're going to believe of course, we've experienced him and we believe. And then our behavior isn't even behavior. It's worship. It's worship because we want to do what pleases him out of a love and relationship that we have with him. And so here is the book of Job written to a Jewish audience to correct a false way of thinking that has been just having a hold on them. And it offers a new paradigm. Job is saying that this old way of thinking has major cracks. There are truths to it. There are times that our actions bring pain. There are times that our actions bring blessing. But when we make that an absolute, it does not work, and it puts us in bondage. This message is important for us as it was for the Israelite community 4,000 years ago. You see, if we play into the thinking of that day, it creates this I deserve it thinking. 
And we see this in churches all over the place. I deserve it. It creeps in, and sometimes we don't even realize it. On this side, it's I deserve the blessing. I've stayed on the straight and narrow. I've been generous with my resources. I deserve the blessing. On a corporate level, that's prosperity, gospel, and it's spreading all over the world. On the other side, it looks like a person walking through pain and suffering, and they're not doing well, and they say, I deserve this. Clearly, I've done something wrong. Clearly, I've upset an angry God, and he is punishing me. And that guilt turns into condemnation and shame and it creates a bondage and it makes people think that there is this burden that they are carrying that they can't and they leave the faith. Oftentimes cursing God on the way out. Church family, this book is important because it's a reminder to us about the framework that we have, a framework that says we live from God's favor, not for God's favor You are a child of the king if you know Jesus. His favor is upon you. You did nothing to earn it. It is there because he loves you, because he created you and desires relationship with you. And throughout the book, Job drops these just truth bombs to help guide us. One of them is God's wisdom is trustworthy. It's kind of the point of the book. Those he created are arguing about this philosophy of how God should govern the world as though they should know. And the assumption is that the human concept of justice and this retribution principle that you get what you deserve are the only ways that a good God could govern. The introduction, this prologue sets up the thought experiment that's going to happen in the next chapters through these conversations. But spoiler alert. No great philosophy is introduced. Instead, God in his vastness will eventually respond to Job by never actually answering his questions, but by by saying, behold who I am. Because it starts with beholding. We often make the comment, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask God this question. You have yours. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Why mosquitoes? Why did the unicorns not make it onto the ark? But here's the thing. When heaven comes to earth and the kingdom of heaven is fully established and we see God face to face, I don't think any questions that we have will matter. You see, his ways are just different. And here in the book of Job, God is saying to Job and his friends, you don't really get it. You can't comprehend the perspective I have. In many ways, it's greater but similar to a parent and their grade school kid. And the grade school kid, maybe myself, when I was in fifth grade, saying, I need that Nintendo And my parents saying, you're not going to get the Nintendo. And me saying, you don't know how the world works. I need the Nintendo. You don't get it. My friends have one. I need it. And them saying, no. And me saying, I need it. And someday I will have kids and I will give them these things. And now that I'm a parent, I find it interesting. You see, the perspective changes everything. And I'm embarrassed of even comments I likely made when I was young to my kids 
And in a similar way, Job and his friends recognize that once God speaks. His wisdom is trustworthy. Trust is the title of this series. It's what we're invited into. We can't surrender to his rule and his reign if we don't fully trust him. The second major truth we see here is that trials, trials are opportunities that God redeems, not punishments that he sends. Job isn't being punished. Job is a righteous sufferer, and God isn't careless or merciless with Job. He is permitting these tests because he knows Job's heart. He knows that there's an even deeper love and intimacy that he and Job will have when all is said and done. Throughout Scripture, we see a primary way that God draws us deeper and into deeper levels of trust and intimacy with him is through hardship. It breaks that I deserve it thinking. I wish it wasn't this way, but we see it throughout Scripture. Tim Queller has a quote. God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. That's a big statement. It's a statement that reminds us that we have a God of redemption. And James speaks in a similar way to his church in Jerusalem, when in chapter one he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And may I confess, this is not my favorite verse. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. See, we often start from this assumption that God is withholding his favor from us when we're suffering. But here in Job and in the book of James, we will see that it is actually an invitation, an opportunity to be driven towards him if we are willing to trust and embrace it. A final truth we see here is that the motivation that God is after is actually relational, not transactional. It's relational, not transactional. Most religions look at Christianity and say, what is that? Because it's not measurable. They look and say, where are the scales of doing good versus doing evil? See, we humans are good at putting philosophies and equations and formulas together that say A plus B equals C, and Christianity is not that way. Our relationship with God is living. It is not mechanical. It's not, and yet we try to make it mechanical. We try to read God's word as though it's an operation guide, and if we just replace this screw and unplug and replug that in, this thing should work And that's not what it is. The deal is that we know worship and surrender to a God that is about relationship and redemption. He wants our dialogue, our honest communication in the good times and the bad. And when we remember this point, I believe that it will keep us operating from his favor instead of looking for, looking to earn his favor. And this is the point that leads us to the Lord's table. Because there was a transaction that was made, but it's not your transaction. There was a transaction that was made so that you could have a relationship with the King of Kings. Another righteous sufferer walked this earth. The suffering servant of Jesus 
His transaction, he exchanged his life. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you and me to give us access. The son of God gave up his life on the cross so that we could have a relationship with the king of kings. The transactional sacrifices of the Old Testament were no longer needed because of Christ's work on the cross. And so as we get ready to move back into worship this morning, there's two movements that I want to invite you into. The first is this. If you are stuck in the transactional life with Jesus and you don't have this relational deal with creator God, might today be the day to make the change? If you have been focusing on behavior modification to please an angry God, but in worship today, somehow you experienced his love in his heart for you, recognizing he is a good father, a father of redemption, and something is stirring, might today be the day to make a change? And so as we head back into worship, can I encourage you to come to the cross? Myself or elders will be there and we would love to start a conversation with you, to listen to you, to pray with you, and to guide you towards that. In a second movement, it's to the table. For those of you downstairs to come to the front, upstairs to go up the stairs to the back. For those of you on live stream to go and get the elements and join us. It's remembering that our relationship with God was purchased by Christ. There's nothing we do to earn that salvation. We practice open communion here at Salem Alliance, which simply means that if Jesus is Lord of your life, if you've put your trust in him, you are welcome to join us. Scripture reminds us that before we come to the Lord's table, that we need to pause and invite the Holy Spirit to just search us and see if there's anything in us that doesn't please him, and to bring that into the light and to receive forgiveness before we come. So before you come today, would you make sure that your confessions are current? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having dinner with his inner circle, and he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the communal cup of wine and he showed it to them, and he said, this represents my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins, symbolizing a new covenant that will come. So as we head into worship, please come and partake. Holy Spirit, would you come and visit us here? We invite you to examine our inner lives and we invite you to make this experience come alive today as we recognize this, the transaction that you made. You, the righteous sufferer that gave it all for us, may we live from your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.